0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our European Cinema Series, I am joined again by my friend Flag Taylor for a conversation about the new Agnieszka Holland movie, Mr. Jones which is just now available in streaming after a very limited art house run last year. And it's a movie everyone should see. It's the first movie that tells Western audiences the truth about Stalin's famine of the Ukrainians in 1932-33 and about the brave, extraordinary young Welsh journalist who went and saw it for himself and told the truth only to be rejected by a liberal press that was far more busy protecting Stalin's reputation than caring about the fate of millions to death. It was the 30s, as Auden said, a low, dishonest decade. And this movie shows just how low and just how dishonest. It shows both the corrupting lies of liberal propaganda, but also, of course, the corrupting destruction of communist tyranny. So it's not going to be an entirely upbeat podcast. The movie has the character of a political thriller mixed with something of a Bildungsroman about the great Gareth Jones who died before 30 and whose story really was never told. It is an act of honoring memory and of retrieving memory, which is the character of our new cinema. And we at the American Cinema Foundation are all for it. I think of Agnieszka Holland as doing what Pavel Pavlikovsky is doing as Flagg and I have talked about in the case of Ida and Cold War, as what Florian Henkel von Donnersmarck is doing in his movies, which we have also discussed with our friend karl Eric Scott on the podcasts. This is a new cinema which is not about individual fantasies, but about national memory, about retrieving it, about dealing with the problem of justice and the horror of 20th century tyranny in both the Nazi and the communist cases. All that by way of introduction. Flag, thanks a lot for joining me. I'm glad you have seen the movie as well and that you were as pleased with it as I was and we get a chance to have another conversation about European cinema. How are
1: you? Doing very well, Titus. Thanks again for having me. I've been looking forward to uh, talking with you about this film for a long time. There was word that it was going to come out on various platforms at various times, and it seemed like it would never happen, but uh, finally it did. And I was, you know, really looking forward to it, as I said, for months and months and months. And so, yeah, let's
0: get into it. Yes, indeed. It almost seemed like the man's story. Gareth Jones was again going to be silenced eight years almost after his adventures. It's good to have this already out there on Amazon and in other places people can just go stream it. And once we get this, we should also talk about our other project, another case of national memory and 20th century tyranny, A Hidden Life by Terence Malik, about the canonized Franz Jägerstetter in Austria during World War II. So, first of all, Flag, please introduce our audience to the story of Mr. Jones.
1: Sure. The movie really, I guess I would identify five acts in it. Apart from the interesting framing device that Holland chooses, the use of George Orwell, the movie opens with Orwell writing a kind of letter or a preface to Animal Farm. So that must be 1943, 44, maybe even 45. Animal Farm was published in 45. I don't know the amount of time Orwell was searching for publishers. But in any case, we see Orwell at a typewriter looking out the window, describing the story that he will tell in Animal Farm. And then the movie moves back to early March 1933, and we meet uh, young Gareth Jones, who was at that time an advisor to Lloyd George. And he's giving Lloyd George and some other British politicians a report on a meeting that he had had on a plane with Goebbels and Hitler, warning them that they ought to take what Hitler says very seriously— Um, They sort of dismiss him, and he soon tells Lloyd George that he'd like to go to the Soviet Union to try to interview Stalin, because in this time of uh, global depression, the Soviets seem to be building things and thriving. And he says, the numbers don't add up, I'd like to find out how the Soviets are doing this. And so he proceeds to get a visa at the Soviet embassy, and then we move to Moscow and we see Jones navigating the world of foreign journalists in Moscow. We meet Walter Durante, the head New York Times correspondent. Jones and Durante have a few interactions, but um, the contrast between Durante and Jones, I think, is the central contrast in the film. Jones then realizes the friend of his, the journalistic friend who had actually enabled him to get on that plane with Hitler and Goebbels, Paul Kleb had been in Moscow and he's been killed and Jones eventually figures out that Kleb had been killed uh, likely because of a story that he'd been working on about the Ukraine and so Jones decides that he wants to pick that ball up and try to go to the Ukraine and so act three of the movie is Jones being taken to Ukraine on the pretense of seeing an arms factory in Kharkiv I think and he's with the Soviet minder but he manages to escape the minder and hike something like, I think, 30, 40 kilometers in the Ukraine through some smaller villages. And what he witnesses is what we now know as the Holodomor, the terror famine, the man-made famine the Soviets created by appropriating the grain of the countryside to give it to the cities and to even export it. From scholars like Robert Conquest and others, we now know that something like four to five to six million people died. It was not just in the Ukraine, but that was the central stage for the famine jones is then eventually caught by the soviets he's expelled and told that if he tells the truth about what he saw these british engineers that the soviets have also captured will likely be killed and so jones finds himself back in london and he's faced with this quandary you know should i tell the truth which will potentially result in the death of these poor british engineers but if i don't tell the truth then what about this famine? and the world may never know about it he proceeds to tell the truth, he gives a press conference, and it seems the press of, of most of the world joins in unison to denounce Jones as a liar. Most significantly, Walter Durante wrote a front page New York Times article specifically denouncing Jones and telling the world that Jones's writing was much overblown and that there was in fact no famine we then learn that the United States then gives official diplomatic recognition to the Soviet Union, which was obviously a big moment for the Soviets. And then we find Jones in Wales, and he's prepared to kind of go back and work at a local newspaper and maybe even work for his father some sort of school in Wales. And then the last part of the film, Jones eventually learns that William Randolph Hearst runs some newspapers and happens to be vacationing in Wales, and Jones contrives a meeting with Hearst convinces him to run some articles about the truth of the famine. The last part of the movie, again, we return to this Orwell frame with the writing about Animal Farm. The arc of a movie is really the story of an intrepid journalist, somewhat naive, who learns the truth about the Soviets and refuses to be cowed into silence by many people of influence, uh, Walter Durani most importantly, who seem intent upon saving the Soviet experiment in the minds of the public by not allowing the truth about the famine to get a hearing. As I said, overall, I think it's very well done. It's very moving, especially the part in the Ukraine is handled very well. Maybe you'd know this better than me, but I don't think there's been any attempt really to portray the Holodomor in a cinematic, non-documentary kind of way. So in, just in that part of the film alone, I think it makes it worth seeing, but especially given present realities and the extent to which journalists who just simply tell the truth are having a hard time getting a foothold in the press today, it's worth thinking about Jones's story. But at the time, right, I mean, I, the movie makes clear that this was a battle that, you know, Jones lost. For many, many, many years, Durante's lies sort of held the day, and it took a long, long time for scholars and eyewitnesses to the Holodomor to come out on top. And so in that sense, I just call the movie a kind of cautionary tale about the ability of lies to triumph over the truth for decades and decades.
0: Yeah, that's right. And of course, the New York Times has never given back the Pulitzer Prize won by Walter Durant before the holodomor by lying systematically about the horrors committed by Stalin. It was not just the press corps or in Moscow that was complicit in uh, propaganda, but of course it was the New York Times. It was all the major organs of liberal opinion in the West. To some extent, the elites were themselves corrupt, since they were much busier protecting the reputation of Stalin and the hope of communism as a transformation of society than to tell the plain truth that before Hitler came to power, Stalin had already systematically had millions of people die in this horrifying slaughter of starvation in a terrible winter. And you're right, this is the first time the Holodomor is portrayed in a dramatic way, in a story that has a lot of talent behind it. Agnieszka Holland, the Polish director, is famous both in Europe and in America for her movies, for her work in TV, and as, in a way, an heir of Andrei Vaida, who was her mentor. Since we've already talked about Holland, we should tell our audience that we did our previous podcast on her work on Burning Bush, the 2013 three-part miniseries on HBO about the self-immolation of Jan Palach in protest at the crushing of the Prague Spring. Agnieszka Holland was then a young woman, although Polish, she was in Prague and was arrested with so many other young dissidents in the repression of the Prague Spring by the Soviets. At the end of her career, now she is in her social security years, let's say, she has been making these movies trying to tell the truth about communist tyranny in various incidents, all of them true stories, and apparently especially these two about Jan Palach and now about Gareth Jones, who are martyrs of communism and of truth-telling, and therefore raise these questions about what does it take in times of tyranny to tell the truth. We usually think about journalism in relation to truth-telling, even aside from clichés, because we need enlightenment. You cannot run a modern country, there are 300 plus million people in America, they cannot simply talk to each other and find out what's going on. They do not have access to important things that may be happening in business or in politics or in other countries or what have you. We rely on the press to tell us what's happening. What happens if the press systematically lies? What happens, that is to say, when what the people believe about the country and what the elites, including journalistic elites, believe about the country can no longer be reconciled. This is the sort of crisis that Gareth Jones was involved in as a naive young man of the left. As you said, he made his career being a foreign policy advisor to then-former Prime Minister Lloyd George who had seen Britain through World War I. That was the Liberal Party fully dedicated to welfare and so a left-wing party, broadly speaking. He was not a man of the right, he was not a reactionary, he to some extent shared, Gareth Jones did, the hopes of social transformation, especially after the catastrophe of World War I. And yet he was willing to tell the truth and to seek out the truth in all its horror out of moral conviction. This, I think, is why he has this connection in the movie, which, so far as I can tell, is purely fictitious but very well done, with George Orwell, who is the most famous man of the left in the 20th century, to have turned against communism, perhaps because he was the first to do so and the first to succeed in doing so in England. And so, Orwell is shown as the heir of Gareth Jones. The first time when the truth that Gareth Jones tried to tell actually sees the light of day, actually makes an impact, and importantly, does it through fiction, not through reporting, not through journalism. This is poetry, not enlightenment, and yet it was poetry that succeeded, which in a way justifies the biopic now, which itself is poetic. It takes certain departures from history. But it also suggests that we do need also the historical truth. We need to be able to face these facts even these many years later. And it would seem to be because, as you said, the temptation of propaganda, it has not gone away. It is no clearer today than it was in the 30s that in any civilized country, the elites and the population share much by way of beliefs, principles and trust. So truth-telling is both a moral act and a political act, and we have to somehow put together the story of the young man, Gareth Jones, dead before the age of 30, an intrepid reporter, a very accomplished scholar, and on the other hand, the world situation that he saw developing in the early 30s. He is presented indeed in the first sequence as telling uh, people about the coming world war, about the need for an alliance against Hitler only to be laughed at. So he decides to get the evidence to find out whether his ideas are worth anything and whether his fears are real.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting parallelism, right? Those first scenes in London versus what you see in Moscow. Jones suggests at one point, right, that you need to take Hitler at his word These eminent British parliamentarians, right, sort of snicker at the idea that uh, Hitler means what he says, right? That's one form of blindness. And then on the other hand, the other form of blindness is to believe the obvious untruth that the Soviets are telling right? And so there are these two temptations of not taking obvious statements of intention seriously is one problem, and then taking what should be sort of obvious propaganda to be the simple truth on the other. You know, And obviously, Jones avoids both of those temptations, I suppose primarily because he doesn't seem attached to the idea of a myth of history, you know, that history is moving in a certain direction. This minor character, Ada Brooks, a fellow British journalist who happens to be in Moscow when Jones arrives. We learn later her parents are diplomats, so she was based in Berlin, and she's scared to death of Hitler for good reason. But she sort of uses that fear to justify the Soviet myth of the only thing that can defeat fascism and the future of mankind depends on the Soviet collectivist experiment. And so she, you know, seems to be willing to not tell the truth about some things if it damages that Soviet myth now, she's a much more moderate version of that temptation than Durante. And maybe now we can talk about the portrait of Durante a little bit when we move to Moscow. What did you think of the portrait of Duranti and especially what we see at the party that Duranti throws in his flat?
0: I do not know much about Walter Duranti because when I was a young man in college, I read the series of articles for which he was awarded the Pulitzer and that was born in communist Romania. The systematic lying about Stalinism, the suave, sophisticated playing with tyranny, suggesting that the Russians actually like it. It is good for them. The condescending irresponsibility is utterly despicable. We see all of that in the movie, but we also see this other part that you were alluding to. Sexual decadence that reminds one of Weimar Germany. I spent some time thinking about why would the movie do this? Most of us would never know whether Durante really had all these contemptible proclivities. There's the house party with uh, luxuries, with music. There's also full of naked men and women, sexual deviancy, heroin, which we are told in a telling moment is a replacement for God, really. Thinking about it, watching the movie again today, I thought there is a connection between this and Weimar Germany. These are societies where very sophisticated people feel the need to abandon the old bourgeois and Christian morality as worn out historically and also hypocritical, hiding exploitation, and to find some kind of new bonds and some kind of new experiences that will justify innovation, social transformation, a world beyond marriage or sexual fidelity or what have you, a world beyond limits. This in a way prepares political extremism. One is immediately reminded, of course, of the famous statement of Tocqueville that in America people were married, had homes, and these things meant they had much in life to enjoy in private and also much to lose, and so they shunned radical politics. But on the other hand, in France in his day, adultery had become a competitive sport, and men took the humiliation of the conjugal bed out in radical political clubs. This is how Tocqueville explains the relationship between private and public radicalism and therefore prepares his thesis that Christianity is the most important political institution in America by staying out of politics. Well, here we see these advanced societies, far more educated, far more progressive than Americans, where we see a new relationship. Uh, Radicalism in private life is supposed to prepare radicalism in public life. It is supposed to excuse immorality and injustice and indulge in catastrophic things until you become habituated to it so that whatever sense of shame you have left is numbed. And so I think the party scene, which shocks the very easily shocked, apparently, Gareth Jones, plays a very important part in revealing what's wrong with these people. They are not just playing a part in public, telling the systematic lies of Stalin. They are also damaged goods.
1: You yeah, I've just been rereading uh, this book by Raymond Aron, The Opium of the Intellectuals, uh, happened to be rereading it when I saw the film. And Aron makes the point that nihilism and fanaticism are sort of twins. And so I think, too, that that party suggests that, you know, the fanaticism, confidence and self-denial of the early Bolsheviks is gone and the people like Durante and the other people at that party already have a sense that the revolution (laughs) isn't working as advertised. A full, open embrace of the revolutionary ideals, which would in fact entail self-denial and commitment, right, is gone. That to me, I think, was an interesting choice by Holland to kind of show that it's only 1933, but this regime is already in a second corrupt phase.
0: Yeah, that is a very good point, since you know none of the hardship and harshness required for revolution is on display anymore. It reminds me of another thing Tocqueville pointed out, that as egalitarianism radicalizes, what will happen to the aristocracy and the people who imitate aristocracy is that they will start throwing orgies and doing shockingly vicious things to set themselves apart, to have in ugliness what they once had in splendor, to separate them from the middle classes. This is partly based on uh, Rousseau's statements. Uh, If one reads uh, Julie ou La Nouvelle Eloise, he explains how aristocratic women, in their contempt for the bourgeoisie, decided to start acting like whores, only to find themselves imitated once again. Then this corruption spreads through the manners of society. So there's a deep problem there. We also see this, of course, with the sick art of the mid-19th century, the decadence of the bohemians that ends up with poets like Baudelaire, Verlaine, or Rimbaud in France. The cursed poets, the poet Modit, imitators of aristocracy, will imitate, just like the aristocrats, all the vices that shock the middle classes. And we see this here as well, that the land of equality has created, through radical egalitarianism, a radical new exploitation. It is yet one more of the contradictions of the regime, and one of the early signs we get that the more you rest on utopian hopes, the more you create the apocalypse. yeah, And it's just as true of personal life as it is of public life.
1: Yeah, and and you can see Jones is both confused and repelled by all of this. And although he is portrayed as somewhat naive about the Soviet Union, he seems surprised that his woman friend Ada, you know, has a KGB minder that follows them around. I think he does understand pretty quickly though that Durante's statement about the five year plan doubling output, that can't be quite right. And maybe this guy that would throw these kind of parties and seems so supremely confident and nonplussed by some of the statistics and statements that are coming out of the Kremlin, maybe he should find some things out for himself. We're made to see Jones as a- somewhat naive and innocent. But also he has a certain kind of ambition, right? Here's a guy who thinks that if he just has the right contacts, he'll be able to interview Stalin. He's already spoken to Hitler. He contrives, and this is interesting, right? This is the one lie that Jones tells in the whole film. He's given a letter by Lloyd George, a letter of introduction that is meant to open some doors for him once in Moscow. And the letter says that Jones is Lloyd George's former advisor, and Jones, uh, with a razor blade, you know, cuts off the word former and puts valued advisor because he knows if he's seen to be still in the ploy of Lloyd George, he'll have an easier time accessing important Soviet people. And so he eventually, I think, interviews the commissar for foreign affairs, which is how he gets to Ukraine. He very cleverly prods the guy about asking whether the Soviets are prepared for an attack from Germany especially in Ukraine, right? Would your Western front be secure against a German attack? And of course, the Soviet commissar takes great offense. Of course, i will show you an arms factory. And so although Jones is portrayed as innocent, he's also portrayed as quite clever and ambitious in how he sort of navigates the world to gain access for his journalistic enterprises.
0: Yeah, Gareth Jones reminds one of a Christian ideal, right? He is innocent as doves and wise as snakes able to ply his craft, trick people and have his way in order to find out, but it's all in the cause of learning and telling the truth. He sees quite quickly how corrupt and decadent the Moscow press corps is. These are willing songbirds in a gilded cage. He begins to have contempt for the most prestigious journalists in the world, Pulitzer winners, fresh minted like Duranty. They neither have the intellectual capacity nor the moral capacity to ask serious questions and to find out serious answers. Aside from their political commitments, they are also cowards and ignorant. So there is not just shock in his reaction to them. I believe there's a lot of contempt, since otherwise he would not risk so much trying to do what they refuse to do. He shows that he is himself fearless, that he is their superior. That is more obvious, of course, as you suggested, in his playing tricks on the otherwise wily and very confident Soviets. They think they are in control of all these useful idiots and fellow travelers, to repeat the communist language of the times. They think that they have got liberals in control because they are so eager to say pleasing utopian things. And so scared even by the thought of saying that history has not ended and tragedy has not ended and human nature has not changed. And this seems to lead Jones into the Ukraine, you know, the thousand kilometer train ride from Moscow into the south near the Crimea where he loses his handler by getting him drunk and quickly running off the train and catching another train in another direction. And there you see again, as you said, he is quite crafty, quite wily, quite willing to take personal risks, including with his life. That shows virtues. This is how people would like to portray journalists, especially journalists would like to portray themselves this way. But these are in fact quite rare qualities, and of course they are especially necessary in times of crisis, when uh, you can no longer rely on people to tell the truth, you can no longer rely even on institutions it might take something of this complexity. A man who does not obey institutional rules but indeed starts creating an international scandal if it comes to that and uh, endangers people's lives. The thriller aspect of the movie is quite compelling and I believe all of it relies on this, not just that we don't want this innocent young man to come to harm and we might not entirely want to see the truth that he wants to see, but that there is so much politically at stake, not just morally Because he's shifting from the people whose mutilation of human nature is essentially in speech, although it does have political consequences, of course, it will help doom Western Europe to complacency in face of world tyrannies rising. But we're moving from that kind of mutilation of human nature to the mutilation of human nature indeed not in speech where people are destroyed and the moral intensity of Gareth Jones's quest is pitted against the moral intensity of the phenomenon. He is seeing the holodomor, slaughter of millions of people, which had simply been unexampled in Europe before that moment.
1: Yeah, I thought that middle section of the film where there really is an effort by Holland to portray mass starvation, what that would look like in the Black Earth region, right? One of the richest agricultural regions in the world. You know, it took just a few years to reduce that region to mass starvation. And, yeah, there's some, some haunting scenes. You know, he finds a couple in bed. He finds a family that has been reduced to cannibalism in a sort of horrifying way. And he finds carts of dead bodies that are being carried through small villages and, and children found next to their dead mothers. And I think, you know, all of that is handled in a way that illustrates the horror but doesn't, I don't think, seem irresponsible or sensationalized in any way He is eventually caught by the Soviets. His arrest is linked to these six British engineers who have been brought in to the Soviet Union, presumably to help the Soviets build this mass industry that Stalin is famous for for bringing into the Soviet Union. They're arrested on the pretense that they're spies stealing state secrets. Jones is also arrested and agreed to let go back to London as long as he doesn't tell lies as his Soviet commissar tells him these rumors of a famine are false. There is no famine. He makes Gareth Jones repeat that line in his office. There is no famine. And then finally, the Soviet commissar says, and this is a line I think that is repeated in some form by Duranti, And so I think it's worth mentioning. He says, there are those who would like to see our revolution fail. Right. And so there's the suggestion that any truth one tells about the Soviet Union, especially if it's a small truth that's not put in the right context that does damage to the revolution, is irresponsible for you to tell. And so there's a kind of wink, wink. Yes, there is no famine. But on the other hand, yeah, we admit there might be a famine, but this is just a minor detail that in the grand march of history will come to be seen as worth what the revolution will presumably accomplish in the future. And that is certainly what the movie suggests Durante's thinking is, right, that he wants there to be lots of foreign investment into the Soviet Union because that's necessary for the revolution to succeed. And when Jones is back in Moscow just before he's expelled, he meets Durante again, and and there's this kind of confrontation, and Jones says, you knew, didn't you? And Durante, of course, is taken aback and says, well, I convinced them to let you go. In other words, you owe your life to me. And then he tells Jones, you need to choose a cause greater than yourself and put aside all one's little miserable ambitions. So again, the cause of truth is negated in the light of a greater cause, something bigger than oneself. And so I think the movie does a pretty good job of showing you the extent to which that frame of mind is shared by both the Soviets and their Western apologists. And also, I suppose, how seductive that thinking might be. Maybe the movie could have done a better job of that. I think Durante, in a way, it's easy to kind of hate him. He's a pretty repellent character. Although Ada Brooks, right, the younger aide to Durante, is a more attractive character, and she has that same frame of mind for much of the film. So, yeah, I think the seductiveness of thinking that one ought to excuse these little lies in light of the greatness of this revolution, that's portrayed pretty well.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's right. right. The movie has this structure of a descent into hell and the kind of return. Britain to Moscow to the Ukraine, back to Moscow, back to Britain. Gareth Jones somehow makes it out alive with the ugly truth and tries his best to share it both on his way down and on his way back up, he learns more and more about the limits of human nature and about the power of corruption. History with a capital H apparently can justify anything. It will reconcile, no doubt in a dialectical way, all the obvious contradictions we see. The transformation through rational communism is supposed to create wealth, and Duranti says that, and then he also says that, you know, it's admittedly the case that there are all these bad things happening this poverty, this misery, but what are you going to do? Well, what are you going to do? Is this supposed to create wealth and therefore equality for everybody, enough for everybody, or is it supposed to create vast millions of human sacrifices? This is, in fact, much harder to reconcile. <laughs> so also with the revolution, both the inevitable future in mankind and something so brittle as a political project that it could be undermined by telling the truth about what's actually happening. Well, that also is a contradiction that won't, in fact, allow of reconciliation. The press corps in Moscow and the liberal lovers of communism are stuck in a situation where they can no longer believe in the political legitimacy of the countries that gave them birth and raised them and indeed gave them their privileges, but they are already aware of the moral compromises and the selling one's soul required in order to have this one last hope, the Soviet Union, at whatever cost. They're contemptible creatures. The movie fails to convey just how powerful the attraction of communism was and just how close so many liberal intellectuals were to communism. And I think this is a problem because even nowadays people are in fact not among liberal elites enemies to communism in the way in which they are enemies to Nazism the hope of radical egalitarianism this utopia is still very much alive even if it is so much less influential i'm not worried or scared of some kind of creeping socialism as conservatives used to say during the cold war it's not going to happen but that the same belief will lead to madness if of a different kind i have no doubts the movie could have done better to show as you suggest why so many prestigious people why so many ambitious people would fall for this It's, of course, as you said, Raymond Aron's Opium of the Intellectuals, the Marxist fantasy that gets intellectuals in our age going because it seems to them the only way to reconcile a personal ambition in the intellectual sphere with a political ambition that has to involve everybody else. It's quite a natural psychological drive to replace politics, which requires a lot of boredom, experience, compromises, and failures with abstractions and with the revolution that will wash away all this historical past of oppression injustices of human misery there is something to be ashamed of in human history from this point of view and therefore the sooner it is destroyed the better we indeed see nowadays again the desire to wipe out the past because it's an embarrassment or indeed an outrage it is a useful focus for personal anger and unhappiness people who have lost any humane faith, whose very dedication to humanism requires human sacrifices and from utopia will lead to apocalypse down this path. This is still very much a problem and there are still people confronted with this question. Do they believe that they are radical egalitarians willing to do justice where no one else is? Or do they believe they are a new kind of being that can judge, create new ideals and sacrifice anything in cruel tyranny in order to fulfill a vision? We see with the the characters in Moscow that they vacillate between the claim that, you know, they're one with the working classes, they're one with the masses, we're all the same, and the claim that they are some kind of artists, creators of history. We see that, of course, once again in our times, the suggestion that the people who want to destroy the unjust past are not just fit judges of past oppression, but they are fit creators of new myths, that they will set mankind on uh, some kind of path. That, again, brings up this question of nihilism. People who are very relativist about bourgeois values can be very fanatical about other values. And indeed, it would seem that it is precisely this relativism, this hopelessness with regards to all historical precedent that leads to this dark fanaticism, either in the same people or in the people who learn from them. Indeed, political correctness has led to this new charge of systemic racism that is widespread in America by a generational path, but it was sure to arrive there in the way in which relativism is always sure to lead to fanaticism. People will have values. What they will no longer have is the conviction that they can and should be argued and deliberated upon in a reasonable and rational way in public. They will have instead willful imposition and the kind of joy of violence, of destruction that reminds one as much of the Nazis as of the communists. As I said of this possibility that these people aren't just humanitarians. They think they are new gods who are able to play with mankind, who might say in Orwell's famous phrase that you gotta break eggs to make omelette. And Gareth Jones can be said to have acted avant la lettre on the opinion of Orwell that you should always ask these people, well, where's the goddamned omelette? You know the broken eggs, but where is that omelette? And as Orwell also pointed out, these people will answer with a doctrine of catastrophic gradualism. It is absolutely necessary to transform history. And when the revolution fails, you have to say, well, what did you expect? From saying that we will achieve heaven on earth to saying, well, our monsters are not really worse than the monsters of history. And Gareth Jones has to see all this, and indeed, along with him, we have to see what this means. What it means to do this to human beings, to corrupt souls and then to destroy bodies, to reduce human beings to zombies, to corpses, to cannibalism, to less than corpses. The full horror of violating human nature is on display, and indeed in one terrible moment before he is arrested in Ukraine, he asks a woman how come they're all starving, and she says to him in this very implausible but dramatically very important moment that they violated the laws of nature. This is what they have done to us. They have starved us all. Instead of a promise of a new equality, you get equality in death, the equality of the graveyard of history.
1: Yeah. One more thought I had just about the portrayal of Jones's devotion to truth. I think it's right before he goes to Ukraine. He has an exchange with Ada about, you know, what journalism really is. And he says in a kind of dramatic way, well, you know, we're just supposed to tell the truth. It's a kind of cliche and it felt a little heavy handed to me. I understand what Holland was trying to do. And I think if you flesh it out a little bit, though, and sort of think about, you know, his deeds in light of what he says... What Jones is really about is a kind of modesty, that journalistic ethic has to include a kind of modesty in that one goes to some place, reports on what one sees, tries to give readers the most faithful and accurate picture of what one saw, but doesn't do a whole lot beyond that, right, and so if one thinks about Durante and the other characters of the film, I think their thinking is, well, that seems sort of irresponsible because if you just do that, right, you're not keeping in mind the grand arc of history and piecing together the meaning of these discrete events. And that way, I think the film does a good job of portraying what a sensible journalistic ethic would look like and that it, it always aims at the particular in the concrete and is not so impatient as to try to force these discrete particulars and concrete events, you know, into some grand meeting or narrative. But these people who, you know, go beyond that just think, well, I have to do that because if I don't do that, there's no meeting and it's not really worthwhile to be in this game that seems so insignificant. And so, I, you know, when this movie gets spread more widely, I'll be interested to hear what professional journalists think about it.
0: Yeah, you make a very good point that we see, as you said at the end of the movie, whereas Gareth Jones fails almost completely, Walter Durante succeeds in his plan to persuade FDR to legitimate trade with the USSR and prepare for a coming alliance. And you know, you do have to judge things politically, Gareth Jones himself says in the beginning that we have to figure out whether we can make an alliance with the Soviets. We need them to deal with the right flank of the Germans when the Germans make war on us on the left flank. We cannot do this alone. We need an ally. Well, we can say that that's also what Durante is shown to have done. He And much more effectively, he did secure the American-Soviet alliance by hiding the truth about the worst genocide in world history and legitimating the USSR in the US. He is not just a journalist, he is an advisor to FDR in an informal but apparently very potent way. So there is a very troubling political reflection here that while journalism is, as you said, based on the opinion that the public can deal with what is happening that is of importance, we see a situation where this might not be true anymore. What about in a time of crisis? You know, you might not even get to the public. The elites are themselves too scared and you know, traumatized by the loss of historical hope and the memory of the Great War. What if progress has led to the slaughterhouse? What are you going to do now? How could you give up a desperate last hope? You see enlightenment itself pushed to the brink. What if telling the truth is too depressive? What if the time has come for myth-making and systematic lies that promise this paradise in the east, as it turns out? Yeah. Yeah. So it's opening up a very complicated matter that the movie doesn't do much to deal with, but it opens it up. Right, right. It prepares for this confrontation between the politics of Gareth Jones and the politics of Walter Durante.
1: That's the really nice, that occurs to me what you just said, is stresses the importance of that really nice line of Durante's, right? Choose a cause greater than yourself and put aside your little miserable ambitions, right? Well, what if your ambitions aren't miserable and they're not little, right? I mean, Jones's ambition is... Yeah, I can interview a head of state and ask him what he, what he thinks about X or Y. I mean, that's, that's a good ambition, right? So individual ambition can be a force for good, and it ought to be encouraged, not crushed. And you see, you know, Durante, just in light of what you just said, strikes me as someone who's almost sort of annihilating himself totally, right and his own conscience and his own reason he's just linking his own writing to the cause of the revolution but it, in doing that he really just destroys himself right and, and the movie adds that detail at the end before the closing credits that jones is killed in manchuria by these bandits but walter durani lives to the ripe old age of 73 and dies in florida <laughs> so that's tough to swallow
0: Yeah, the young, manly Gareth Jones reacted to his rejection by the British publishing houses and the press by going off to Japan and Manchuria to report on the war in the Far East, living up to his opinion that another world war is coming and we had better see what's happening and tell the truth about it. We have to warn people. His personal courage is tied to the belief that democracy has not failed government of the people, for the people, and by the people is still the only important political concern. He doesn't seem to have any complicated opinions about either politics or the press. He simply takes it as legitimate and it is his job to deal with it in the best way he can up to the point where this sort of small public service as a journalist leads him to death, probably killed by communists. So there seems to be a connection between the nihilism of Durant and his cowardice and the fact that he survived because he never took chances. And on the other hand, the manly bravery and the dedication to freedom of Gareth Jones and his early death, that again makes it very problematic. We need these kinds of heroes, but they will be paying a price that nobody wants to pay. Yeah. Human affairs are so complex that it is precisely our love of peace that led us to catastrophe in the Second World War. And, you know, it will happen again. The movie is so plausible because everybody in their bones knows that this will happen again. War is not over and tragedy is not over. Horrors will happen again. When you see today NBA stars that are supposed to be manly demigods bowing before China and uh, having NBA camps in the capital of Xinjiang where they're putting Muslim Uyghurs in concentration camps by the millions, you think, you know, where is their man? Yeah. Well, they're politically correct. They are progressive. They are on the side of history. Surely Chinese tyranny could never become a threat to America like communist tyranny did in the Soviet Union. Surely this is never going to happen again. But it will. In fact, it may be happening already. It would be good to have again somebody like Gareth Jones, who is willing to find out if he can find out and tell the truth, if anybody is willing to listen. These are perennial problems and uh, there is a unique dependence in a liberal democratic regime on truth-telling, on the minimum requirements of journalistic honesty and intrepid investigation. How are we to know what happens in China otherwise? How was anyone to know what was going on in Stalin's Russia otherwise?
1: Yeah, it just struck me, too, now that we've talked about uh, or mentioned at least uh, Tocqueville and Aron, I'll throw a third Frenchman at you. Francois Furet, in his book Passing of an Illusion, says that the Soviet Union's reputation was the highest in the West precisely at the moments when it was undertaking its greatest crimes, right? So the mid, mid-1930s, mid right, around the time of this film And then, of course, right after the Second World War, when scores of millions are going off to labor camps, right? And so I think the film reminds us of that fact and brings up again this reality about China and what's going on in in Western China. And, you know, many people, although I think this is changing slowly, but still changing, willing to excuse lots of behavior by the Chinese regime.
0: Yeah, very good point to Is of course, after our the most intransigent writer against communism and against the European and especially French weakness for Stalin and for this sort of ideology more broadly. Uh, you're right, this is, again, happening in our times. Just think about how much more the liberal press in America loves Xi Jinping, who is a tyrant, than Donald Trump, who may be play actor, but is not, in fact, arresting or shooting vast numbers of people. Think about the complacency of the liberal press throughout the West in the face of an epidemic that's caused hundreds of thousands of dead. No questions are allowed about, you know, how did this happen? Why did China behave in the way it did internationally? Again, you see the same fellow travelers and useful idiots, and they are as proud and prestigious and on top of the most important journalistic and international institutions like the World Health Organization as they were in the 30s. This has not changed. Our elites have not changed. The catastrophes have not changed. And however many people die, this politics of human sacrifices is just as convinced as it ever was. Not least, of course, because back in the days of Durante, they never had to pay a price themselves. These are not the fanatics of communism who are willing to die, they're not losing a hair on their head, but they are encouraging the hecatombs and singing the praises of the men doing the slaughtering and ordering it done. Like in the 30s, the Chinese state has absolute control of the press, it has just kicked all the western journalists out and they are still not complaining about it, they are still not willing to stand up for basic journalistic practices. And you can wonder, are these people now, like those liberals then, just as eager to betray democracy? What if tyranny has become more attractive to them?
1: Yeah. So last thing I thought we might talk about, I think we both, although we like the film and admire it, I have some reservations only in that I think in the end, it's a little bit of a missed opportunity that it could have been an even better film, given the, the importance and dramatic potential of the material. And so maybe you could tell our audience about your slight reservations about the film and why it might not rise to the level of some of the other great films we've talked about on the podcast, like The Lives of Others or Burning Bush, or Never Look Away. I I was going to say Never Let Me Go, but that's not the right movie.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's another one of our conversations. I remember we talked about the movie after the Kazuo Ishiguro novel as well, also totalitarianism. Yes, I do have certain reservations. It's a movie I've seen twice. I've told all my friends about it. I'm going to recommend it to everybody to see it now that it is actually available. But uh, this is a good movie, not a great movie. It is not The Lives of Others or Never Look Away, which are masterpieces likely to survive as long as cinema survives. There are certain weaknesses in the characterization, in the relationship between Gareth Jones and the story he is supposed to reveal. As we already said, the movie is simply not strong enough when it comes to pointing out the weaknesses of liberalism, the totalitarian temptation. This is not something that will rise to the level of Raymond Daron or François Furet. And this is very unfortunate because at least now we should tell the truth. And because, especially now, we should tell the truth, as we said, since we still face this tyranny, temptation. And with this weakness, there are certain others that come along. If I'm allowed a bit of mischief, Gareth Jones is another Harry Potter. He's a bespectacled, pure young man who discovers his strengths in the face of adversity and so forth. But this sells the man short. He was a manly man. Weak people would not end up in Japan and then Manchuria in the middle of the Japanese war in China. This is not a shrinking violet. This is not a shy man we're talking about. He was daring. He indeed interviewed Hitler and went to the Soviet Union a couple of times. And he was someone we should take seriously. He is not to be pitied. He is to be admired. There is about him not an accidental moment of truth-telling, there is a touch of greatness about him. And I feel the movie's interest in drawing us in as an audience, ready to disbelieve that such horror is even possible, we're given this sort of character. Or, okay, if you don't want to say Harry Potter, let's say Frodo. That's, I think that's more acceptable to conservatives and to Christians, but this is not enough. This is a man who has very strong opinions about the coming world war, doing what he can to tell the truth about what's happening. He would have been a useful aide to Churchill, not a hapless but morally good uh, character in some silly story. Together with that, his education, his sterling achievements as a scholar are also simply written out of the story to make him seem more like the rest of us. Well, you know, he had a good education in Wales, on the continent, at Trinity College in Cambridge. He had mastery of French, German, Russian. His linguistic ability was noted, and he was invited to teach in Cambridge, where he started before getting into politics. Indeed, he became a very young advisor on foreign policy to Lloyd George, who had been the most important English politician of his generation, that is, before Churchill. That is a lot that shows great ambition, as you suggested several times, Gareth Jones was not an everyman. He was the counter-elite that Britain needed at that time, and that America needs at this time. Yeah. It will not do to have everyman in these matters. We will need to recognize and to admire the people who are willing to tell the truth and risk their lives for our sake. We're not supposed to cry tears over these people. We are supposed to stand up and applaud.
1: Yeah. On the one hand, I think making him a little naive and ignorant had the benefit of showing that devotion to truth and a sensible journalistic ethic can go along with naivete. That doesn't necessarily lead to uh, the adoption of some, you know, ideological cause that sacrifices people. On the other hand, I think I'm now more convinced by your critique than I was earlier because it just occurred to me that Holland and others could have made the movie more gripping and dramatic by seizing on the fact that Jones was really ambitious and intelligent, that he had already been to the Soviet Union first, I think, in 1930, then again in 1932. This is his third time. That second act in Moscow, they could have had that be lengthened a bit and sort of shown him doing what he actually did historically, which was not only go to Ukraine, but he was able, from what I've seen in his journals, to kind of walk around Moscow and sneak into shops and have conversations with people precisely because of his linguistic gifts. He was actually able, I think, to hide you know, his Welshness and his English accent a little bit. You know, and so you could have made the movie a more traditional thriller of him kind of escaping his KGB minders because, you know, he knew exactly what he was getting into. And so expanding that to make it more of a thriller and maybe reducing the length of time on the back end of the movie, you know, you would have made it more of a spy thriller, but done it in a way that would have been entirely consistent, I think, with Jones's real career. But maybe that's just, you know, I'm not a director. What do I know? <laughs> Yeah,
0: this is not to take anything away indeed from Agnieszka Holland, who is a very good director, and uh, although this does not rise to the heights of her burning bush, which was the previous discussion we had about her work, It is nevertheless very good and also has this thing going for it that it is a unique telling, dramatically, of a very important story. Therefore, something to be treasured, even though we think about how these things might be improved to tell more of the truth and to tell the truth in a more effective way, dramatically, it's nevertheless something to be grateful for. And, of course, everybody should go online and stream this. Now it is available, Mr. Jones by Agnieszka Holland. It's a gripping piece of movie-making. It confronts our moral aspirations with the harshness of tyranny. Watching this a second time, I reminded myself of something the great Leo Strauss said that the signal of the incompetence of modern political science and therefore the corruption, its prestige works on our society, is its incompetence and unwillingness to face tyranny. We always play around with some kind of word that's supposed to be non-judgmental or even maybe, uh, you know, approving of tyranny, but we can't call it by its name. People did not dare do it in the 30s, and in fact, they do not dare do it now. People do not dare say that about somebody like Xi Jinping. And this is a great weakness in liberalism, as it was, because the political science has not really and truly changed. People believe in the same inanities and it doesn't matter how many times they are disproved because they are not disproved in their hearts and they do not see any opportunity for change because they have run out of hope. Massaging language ruled by euphemism and anger over changing euphemisms. The euphemisms of 30 years ago are no good today. We have to keep changing them because reality keeps catching up to them and they get bad connotations. All of a sudden, they become value judgments, which are hated by social scientists (laughs) who prize themselves on fact judgments and nevertheless never seem to face facts any more than they seem to call a spade a spade. That's what the achievement of Gareth Jones was. In a certain way, he was innocent. He was a moral innocent. He had no idea what the hell he was going to find. He didn't think people were capable of doing such things. Indeed, none of us believe that human beings are capable of doing such things. It would be hard to go on with life. But he did not shrink when all these other people far more prestigious and influential all turned cowards and prepared their societies for catastrophe, both in World War II and in the Cold War. This man, he found out the truth and he told the truth as best he could. In Churchill's language, this is triumph and tragedy. He did the best he could and nevertheless, the worst came. That's ultimately what my uh, disappointment was in the movie. It is a really good movie, but it does not tell the truth about human nobility does not show gareth jones as the manly man he was and i think that is a drawback that we are especially offended by nowadays
1: yeah i think you're right they could have i mean we see his commitment to the truth But we don't exactly understand what in his character enables him to believe it and to act on it, right? It's just a little thin in terms of the characterization about why he's, what sort of saves him from the temptations that Ada is is tempted in a way he's not. Well, why not, right?
0: What's the source of his goodness and greatness? Yeah, he's immune to nihilism, but he is in no way a help to us to become immune to nihilism in our turn. Yeah. So we see all the time what he has in common with us, but we never quite see what we might aspire to have in common with him in order to do Mm -hmm. better. Yeah and perhaps to be less vulnerable to deception. In a sense, the movie just gets worse and worse. He survives catastrophe, he survives morally seeing the depths of horror, and then he gets back to England where people lie to him or don't want to face the truth, and he is essentially silenced. He runs into this mad American magnate, Hearst, who really did have this castle in Wales and was interested in publishing these things. It wasn't much of a success, but it was some success, and in a way, maybe that's what the movie says. Gareth Jones should have been American. In an American, intrepidity, this Tom Sawyer attitude would have gone far. Right. In England, the elite institutions and the class system simply silenced mm-hmm. him. He was not one of the elites, and he would never become one, whatever he did. The sort of thing that upset George Orwell just as much as well as others. It's strange to think that Citizen Kane gave this guy his only break, but it's true. It was Hearst. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Flag. I think we've come to the conclusion of our conversation. There are many, many things to say about this almost two-hour movie. Had we had the time, we would have talked about the romance of industrialism in Russia, about Gerd Jones' mother who went as a teacher in the house of an industrialist, was building industry in Russia that is paralleled by these new English engineers building things in communist Russia, only to find out that there's no Tsarist gratitude or whatever anymore. They might be slaughtered with impunity by communism. Things have changed in the East, and industrialization has not led to enlightenment. We could say that liberalization has not led to democratization. (laughs) Far from it. Indeed, another timely concern. So there are so many other things to say, of course. But we must leave it to our audience to watch the movie and to talk about these matters in the way in which they are timely and relevant to us. So thanks a lot for joining me for yet another conversation on totalitarianism. We seem to be doing a lot more of that than our true love, which is uh, Whit Stillman comedies and Brooklyn and all these other beautiful movies. (laughs) But uh, perhaps there is a connection between uh, being willing to face the ugly truth and uh, loving the goodness of life. That's right. So let's get next time to talk about A Hidden Life and Terence Malik and Christian witness in face of terror. That sounds great. I look forward to it. Likewise. All the best, flag. Bye bye.